we're not just protecting against losing power or cooling or, or heaven forbid, a natural disaster in one data center. We're now talking about disasters that affect your data, either encrypting it or corrupting it or, or deleting it. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome to Status Go. I'm your host, Jeff Tun. Is your disaster recovery process a disaster? Many, many times we talk to companies that have tried to implement a DR practice and they fall somewhat short. I can remember my first time as a CIO walking into the organization. And one of the first questions I asked was, do you have a business continuity plan? Well, no, no, we don't. Well, do you have a DR plan? Well, no, no, we don't. But we do do backups, great. And we take them off site, even better. Yeah, they're in the trunk of Joe's car. Well, at least they're off-site. Our guest today is Ben Miller. Ben is a senior cloud solutions architect for us here at InterVision. One of his primary responsibilities is implementing disaster recovery as a service for a wide variety of companies. Ben, I am sure that in your experience, you've run across disaster recovery plans that are just disasters. It's not uncommon at all. Jeff, the, the story you told, I have seen that over and over again. And um, it's not an easy thing to do for an organization uh, whose IT role is not focused on the disaster recovery plan, who doesn't have uh, the business support or momentum or effort or focus on disaster recovery. It's hard to carve out that time and uh, create that disaster recovery plan that is cohesive or works. Even for those who are doing backups and sending the backups off-site, like you said, so if they've uh, upgraded from Joe's car to uh, an off-site <laughs> vault, uh, they still have some challenges because, well, you know, yeah, you can get your data back. That, that's no plan. And where are you getting your data back to, depending on what goes on? It's something that takes focus. Right. It's something that takes thought. And uh, unless an organization has gone through that process, they're not going to have a good quality disaster recovery plan. So what do you see as some of the biggest mistakes or the most common mistakes that companies make when approaching DR or developing a DR plan? Uh, that's a great question. There are a wide gamut of mistakes where uh, people have put together disaster recovery plans and there are a few holes left in them. And top of the list is kind of like I mentioned with backups. It's not really having planned things all the way through. If I take my backups off site and I have a physical disaster in my data center, that doesn't help me recover any faster. Yes, I have data preserved, but that really doesn't give me uh, an RTO uh, of any kind of guarantee. If uh, a weather event or a disaster physically strikes the data center, uh, you know, they're ordering hardware, right. setting things up, trying to figure out uh, how to get a hold of a tape drive. There's a lot of stuff that needs to go on there. So planning through the different types of disasters that you are designing your solution to protect is critically important. 
you may be protecting against uh, data loss with your backups. Uh, however, like I said, the data center failure may not be covered in that model. Um, are you protecting against ransomware? Are you protecting against the uh, disgruntled employee? Are you protecting against security events? So as yeah. part of any good plan, you want to sit down at the start of it and say, what am I protecting against? And, and it's easy to say everything, but <laughs> <laughs> that's fairly impractical, right? Right, right. <laughs> if we right. could plan for everything, uh, it'd be a much more wonderful world. But you can put together the different types of disasters that you're planning to protect and making sure that there is a, uh, you know, a well-documented plan for each of those scenarios is critical. Yeah. You mentioned this in your comments, Ben, that I think a lot of folks for a long time associated disaster recovery planning with some sort of external disaster, whether it's, you know, weather related, hurricane, tornado, snowstorm, whatever it is. But those disasters really cover a lot more types of events than just a natural disaster and being prepared for them is it's a different process than hey your data center's gone because it got wiped out by a tornado right absolutely we've talked to uh, people who have uh, great resiliency built into their environment and even resiliency to protect against natural disaster or losing one data center. But the challenge that they faced or discovered was that in their active, active type of application that might be covered in perhaps an always on availability group or something, that different types of threats like ransomware or uh, corrupt data or, you know, or something that might affect one can easily and swiftly be replicated over to the other nodes that are in that protection group. So the idea that uh, we're not just protecting against losing power or cooling or, or heaven forbid, a natural disaster in one data center, we're now talking about disasters that affect your data, either encrypting yeah. it or corrupting it or, or deleting it. Yeah, totally different approach than the data center being gone or some of your hardware failures or something like that. So you talk a lot about your disaster recovery plan and building out that plan. What are some things that you've seen walking into companies and looking at their disaster recovery plans prior to engaging and building it out uh, in a different way? I've seen a wide gamut. Some of the things that are, uh, I think, more common that can lead to a failed recovery or at least a, a difficult recovery or, are when the plans are not, uh, A, when they're not thoroughly documented uh, so that it doesn't have to be a critical employee executing or if the different varieties of plans are not documented. I'll talk about the first one first. Uh, we've had situations where we had clients contact us during a natural disaster and they asked for help. They not planned ahead to do that because they were counting on their IT team to run the recovery. And they called us up and they said, the hurricane has taken out the power and we can't get a hold of our IT employees. And that was kind of to be expected in that situation because these people were worried about their families. They were worried about getting, you know, life safety situation, um, you know, taken care of. 
and may have had phones, cell phones that were discharged, may have not had cell towers that were up and, and, and able to send and receive signal. So the fact that this organization depended on their IT team to know what to do and to be present to do the recovery created a gap for them. And so in this particular situation, they were able to reach out to us and say, we need your help. We were able to step in, let them get their families to safety and move their workloads out of their data center before it became 11 feet underwater and run it in our cloud to be able to give them access to it. Now, we were able to step in and do a Herculean effort to get them up and going. And that was a great thing that we were able to provide to them. After that, though, we worked with them to develop a plan that essentially yeah. would allow us to step in and do the same thing over again, half time, half the panic, uh, and a lot faster. Right, right. Because the team that that's stepping in to do that, they don't want to operate under that level of panic and stress either, trying to do it on the fly, right? That's one of the reasons why that plan is so important is even if their internal team was available, you don't want them having to remember step A, B, and C when they're under that kind of pressure. You want it to be more of a checklist. That's one of the values in the plan. Spot on, because it may not be the same person who wrote it, who's running it. Yeah, it may yeah. not be your IT who's running it. It's good practices to write this step-by-step, -step, like you're telling somebody new how to execute this. That way you're not forgetting things. You are not, I mean, like you said, the, the there's a sense of panic. There's a sense of urgency. Uh, we don't think right <laughs> when we're under that kind of pressure. Yeah. Uh, so having that uh, tool, having that guide to go through and say, first step, second step, third step is really, really valuable. The other half of it I mentioned is making sure that you plan for the different scenarios, right? So you're writing out those steps for what do I do if I need a uh, full data center failover, like a natural disaster. But what happens if just one part of my application is corrupt? You know, that patch push or the code push or, you know, disgruntled employee or something happens and I only have to fail over part of it. Well, you don't want to necessarily have to fail over your whole data center to accomplish that. So building out your plan, not to just be that one thing, break glass, right. push that one red button. Uh, as a matter of fact, we generally refer to them as playbooks, kind of like a you know, sports reference where you have multiple plays that you can execute. And you design each of them, you plan them out, and you write those steps. So if I need to fail over my exchange DAG uh, instead of the entire data center, again, I have step-by-step -step and I can plan for that execution. Now, as part of this plan, I know we talk a lot about tiering of the applications and and uh, making sure that you've got the sequence defined. Do you run into organizations that have not thought through in what sequence do I need to recover? I think it's not only what sequence do I need to recover, uh, but it's understanding your applications. What are your foundational services like security? Uh, what are your um, critical services to have online? And understanding that from an organizational buy-in, uh, you know, hey, look, if people used to categorize email as a tier three, tier four, we'll get to that. We don't need email. Now email is the lifeblood of a lot of organizations. That's how they're communicating about the disaster. It's how they're communicating to clients or each other or, or you know, remote offices, et cetera. So a lot of times that's now pushed up into the first tier. So it's important to go through and look at the different applications and group them into what order they're being uh, recovered in. That's, that's the first step uh, because you want to make sure that the business and the stakeholders are in agreement about what this is going to feel like if there is a disaster. 
if I if we are offline, what what are our users going to feel, and what are we going to feel? Is it okay that we bring our internal communication up before we bring the external client facing uh, application up? And if that's the the priority of the business, then that needs to be part of the plan. But the second half of that is then you can let the tiering and the urgency drive the technology and the tools that you use to cause that uh, that tiering and create the order in which you recover. So, you know, for example, um, sometimes people get a hold of a tool. You know, the old, uh, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail type of thing. Uh, there might be a, a piece of software that does a certain type of replication and they're like, great, we're going to have it do everything. And if you get in that situation, there is no differentiation in recovery time or cost right. between your highest, most critical, important applications and the cat pictures that somebody put up on the files. <laughs> and you begin to realize, look, in order to have my most critical applications online faster, those have to be with the technology that delivers that, whether it's a native, you know, I mentioned like availability groups or high availability failover within the application. Right. Or, uh, you know, lower tiers might be, you know, hypervisor type replication that where machines are ready to boot within minutes to hours. And then you may have backups that need to be restored. All of those have different cost profiles and time profiles. And if you cram all of your workloads into one of those technologies, you're going to have a mismatch either from a cost or an experience standpoint. So tiering your applications, understanding the order of recovery and what the business requires from a timing of recovery is really going to give you the ability to assign the right dollar and experience from a technology and tool standpoint to each one of those. Do you find that part of the problem in talking to clients or prospects about their applications in this tiering is that typically uh, DR falls in the realm of the infrastructure team and the applications team may not even be involved in the conversations early on and i i know i've found especially um, earlier in my career that the infrastructure team doesn't even really know what's running in some cases on some of these servers and devices uh, within their purview so how do you begin to expand that out to a broader audience so you can tier it that, that's so common. Um, even when it doesn't relate to DR, when people are like, well, we're doing a hardware upgrade. We didn't know what these servers were. So we sent out emails and then we unplugged them to see who screamed. Um, I've, yeah, I've seen that yeah. story over and over again. It's, it is a big red flag when IT is talking to me about DR and they're doing it because it's the right thing to do. That's a great motivation, but they're doing it in isolation at that point. Um, as a matter of fact, even, you know, the application teams being involved with IT is an important step, but I'll even go one further. The organization decision makers uh, really need to be involved right. in this. A right. lot of times disaster recovery is regulated. It's mandated uh, either by clients, by stakeholders, by insurance, uh, you know, by regulations like HIPAA or PCI that require certain things. And if IT is doing the DR planning in isolation, there is usually not alignment between what the business objectives are and what the DR plan does. All the way from, like I said, the business objectives through the application owners and what they do in, in IT. And, and so it's really important. And, and we coach people when we're in, on conversations even to say, you know, what are the drivers for the disaster recovery? Where are these requirements coming from? Uh, if we don't know what those are, it's hard to plan. It's like saying, hey, look, let's take a vacation. Great. Where are we going? 
you got to know that before you can do the planning, right? That's always good. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, you get on the road and you start driving and say, oh, okay, now what? Um, you know, and unfortunately, that's sometimes what happens uh, yeah, with an organization yeah. that doesn't have the, uh, that crystal clear focus yet on, on their disaster recovery plan. So it's important to understand what those business requirements and objectives are. It's important to understand what your applications are and what the requirements are about their availability. So uh, the, the, the concepts of talking to those application owners, inventorying the application, understanding their dependencies, understanding which are the core fundamental functions, you know, that might be required before any applications come up, like DHCP or, or firewalls or, or things that provide services that all applications use. Planning those out, laying them out, understanding their experience, uh, and then creating up is critical. So, yeah, that's very important to involve more than just IT in that conversation. So you've now written this plan. It's a beautiful plan that takes you from start to finish, covers multiple scenarios. You put it on the shelf. And then when there's a disaster, you pull it off the shelf, you blow the dust off of it, and you begin executing, right? Just about every time. <laughs> so, so talk to us about the importance of testing that plan, Ben. There it is. <laughs> well, and, and the put it on the shelf part of it, too, I, I have seen as well. And that, that's something to be careful of is I, I was in an organization once where there was a disaster uh, discussion and someone pointed over at a three-ring grinder that was sitting on a shelf and they said, that's the plan. And uh, I said, well, where else is that plan kept? And they said, no, that's the plan. We all know it's a touchstone. If something goes wrong, we grab that book. Well, it's good to have that touchstone, right? We talked about the importance of that plan. Right, but right. in a physical binder in their you know, operations center, where if uh, there was an, an issue, a fire, uh, you know, some kind of disaster, the building was inaccessible for some reason, they don't have their plan. So n number one, uh, putting it on the shelf should really be somewhere that's accessible. And, you know, we have cloud these days. Uh, it needs to be stored somewhere yeah, safe, yeah. secure, and accessible no matter where you are. So that's, that's the first thing I'll say. And then this next thing I'll say is test, test, test. Right. right. People come to us and ask, and, and sophisticated organizations say, look, how do you manage change control? And well, you know, our processes generally align with most companies' change control processes. We can we can shim into a company's change control processes where we're seeing change requests to firewalls or virtual machines or things like that, which which is important to keeping up the plan, keeping up the replication technology, et cetera. But in the end, something's going to get missed. It's just, you know, human error. Somebody didn't file a, a change request the right way. Somebody did an emergency change during a, a maintenance period. There will be changes that happen to the environment that are not documented. It's just the state of the art where we are. And I know there's some great tools out there. I've looked at a number of them that are fantastic and they will help. But when it comes down to the absolute confidence, if you have to have that confidence that, look, if I have to pull the trigger today and have the recovery work, you got to test it. If you're going to stand up in front of a board and look them in the eye and say, it's going to work, you want to test it. And you will find something every time you test it. And to me, that's a successful test. A successful test is not a test with no findings. Right. It is a test that allows you to execute a scenario 
It allows you to uh, see what didn't work because of a drift between the configurations and do two things, adjust the plan based on that and adjust whatever processes allowed it to drift so that you can get closer to having a nice closed circuit on those change controls and modifications. And so testing frequently is just, you know, uh, it is a cadence. It should be a pace that allows you to go through, review it, make the changes to the plan and let your team practice it so when they actually have to do it there's not oh wait a minute I, I you know we read through this and i'm really not sure how i'm supposed to do these things that are important the other thing i'll say about the testing is that it allows you to pick different scenarios we talked about the playbook or the plan having multiple different scenarios uh, we, we have one client that uh, he he jokes with us but i've heard the darts hit the board uh, before uh, that he has a dartboard that has scenarios <laughs> on it and he throws a dart at it <laughs> and that's the scenario they run uh -huh. and so uh -huh. they they test out you know application a or yeah. application b or this group of applications or the full data center or you know, in some cases, some clients say, hey, look, you know, um, testing is hard um, and right. it takes resources. And I'll, I'll talk about, come back to that in just a minute. But swinging over and doing actual full data center, you know, actual failover as part of our test is enormously frightening. And it should be, unless you have 100% confidence in your solution. It should be a little, little scary to really swing your workloads as part of the test. So while many of our clients don't, they do sandbox tests and right. they gain the confidence. And so maybe they'll do a full, a full swing failover, you know, once a year or once every other year, but they have gotten the confidence of doing partial sandbox failovers or partial application failovers throughout the year to give them assurances and practice for that kind of, you know, the performance, if you will, the live performance. And, and those scenarios can be kind of, kind of fun, right? You mentioned the guy with the dartboard, but uh, I've worked at organizations where they really think up some interesting scenarios and really run the company through not just the ITDR, but business continuity. I mean, we went through scenarios about a fire, an active shooter, uh, a hazmat spill on the railroad tracks behind the building, all those kinds of things. And it makes it kind of fun to go through that with your peers throughout the organization. And they begin to learn a little bit about the challenges that you face in IT for restoring all those systems. So I think there's a lot of benefits to those making a game out of it almost. I think the funnest part is knowing that it's not really happening. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, I, I've definitely seen that because even with organizations that have practiced these things, um, things can happen that cause a breakdown in a chain of events. And, uh, you know, how many times have you heard, you know, so-and-so was had an outage and it was caused by this little thing over here that triggered this, that triggered that, that, you know, this and this ran out of, and, and now there was a yeah. kind of outage. So uh, a team being very creative about what type of scenario they're going to execute and, you know, pushing on these systems, even making a, a little bit of a game out of, okay, yeah, the generator kicks in, but about 15 minutes later, smoke comes out of it and it's offline. Oh, <laughs> we got to adapt on the fly. So yeah, they, yeah. There, there can be, uh, can be some uh, excitement to that. So before we wrap, let's talk a little bit about cloud and cloud DR. And to me, there's two different aspects related to this. One is cloud as a target, but then also many companies are in this hybrid world 
and they have cloud-based applications. How does that impact DR and what are some of the problems that you've seen with either cloud as a target or cloud as a source? Yeah. Cloud can be a real fix or panacea for a lot of things, but uh, let me be clear, it is not the fix for everything. So making sure that you understand what you are using the cloud for, what its strengths are, is important. In the same way you would build out a, a technology in your own data center or applications. So that's my caveat up front. Uh, so I'll split the two scenarios. When somebody is uh, building a cloud native application, there are some uh, fantastic options today to build resiliency into the application. We you know, all hear stories of the chaos monkey or simian army continually causing breakdowns intentionally within resilient applications to enforce and you know test continually the resilience of the application. And that's wonderful, but that's not everybody's everyday reality. That is the, you know, that is the 1%, if you will. You know, think of the IT talent that it requires to develop and maintain and do that kind of thing. Now that bar is coming lower, so that's great. I think someday there will be the ability for people to do cloud native deploys and have those features built in immediately. Uh, and that'll be, that's fantastic. Um, when other people deploy things into the cloud, let's, let's be frank, there's still a lot of migrations going on of applications that were designed to run inside a data center that don't know how to leverage the cloud native resiliency components that you'll find in, in the uh, hyperscale clouds. Essentially, uh, they don't know that they're in a cloud. They just think they're running a Windows or a Linux box uh, in a data center. The application is not aware of object storage or replication. And so with those types of things, it's important to architect the recovery, just like you would in your own data center. You have different tools at your disposal when you are in cloud as a source to do that. Uh, many of the clouds offer the ability for you to essentially pick up your footprint and relocate it over to another data center. But in that planning and architecture, the same way you would do it in your data center, you need to lay out your tiering of your applications. You need to lay out the, you know, fit, right fit for the type of technology that's going to replicate it. Because again, it's not free. Cost and time are interchangeable. Um, the, and, and you need to plan and test those plans. So even though you may be fully in cloud, but not cloud native with your application, it looks very similar to what you might do at your own data center. Now the to cloud, like you are coming from your data center and choosing a cloud, I'll say there are a couple different things that you wanna pay attention to there. Uh, the to cloud uh, essentially gives you great opportunity. The mega clouds offer you the ability to have, you know, like free ingress data and, you know, no resources consumed except storage until recovery. A lot of great features that make them very appealing for that recovery. But you are moving from one technology to another as part of your recovery. So this is very important that you choose the right technology and that the actual experience, not the marketing experience, the actual experience for the product delivers the type of performance and experience that you need to that cloud. So, for example, if you're going from a VMware environment to uh, an AWS environment, the VMs from VMware don't run natively in an AWS, you know, EC2 type of environment. And uh, not all the tools are yet designed to make that replication smooth or, or even going to the, you know, AWS VMware instances. So that's, we're not there yet from a technological standpoint. So it's important to understand how the technology is going to work and help you do that. Even more important 
is understand what your business's cloud strategy is. Are you going uh, as a business? Are you in a process of migrating to a specific cloud? Can you leverage your cloud strategy? If your company is going all Azure and beginning migrations there, you may be able to leverage that to uh, build your DR plan or your current DR plan around going that direction until those applications are migrated into the cloud. So understanding your business objective, making sure the technology is compatible. Those are important things to do. That all being said, just like with your data center to data center, or et cetera, it's important to plan it out, analyze what's out there and pick the best fit. I'll talk about a third cloud option and that's hosted cloud. There are a lot of cloud vendors that are running clouds based on VMware's infrastructure or Microsoft's virtual infrastructure that allow you to be able to do DR to their hosted cloud. You're out of the data center business from a you know DR strategy standpoint. You are just going like to like technology replication, which can speed up and simplify some of the disaster recovery uh, uh, bumps as you are when you are in a recovery state. So looking at the mega clouds, looking at the uh, hosted clouds, and looking at how the technology that you're running internally and the replication technology align with your business objectives or DR is the appropriate way to approach choosing what the right public cloud is or choosing the right hosted cloud. Ben, I am sure with our listeners out there, there are many that are listening to some of these stories, some of these IT disasters, and saying to themselves almost sheepishly, gosh, that sounds a lot like me and my shop. So to those listeners, what's one thing that they should do differently tomorrow based on hearing our conversation today? I think the most important thing is to understand your business's requirement for disaster recovery. Uh, you can have the uh, the backups. You can have them offsite, whether they're in Joe's trunk or at you know a vault. Uh, but if that effort does not match what the business requires during a disaster, it's going to be uh, even more of a disaster because the experience is not going to match the dollars and cents of the business need. So I, that to me is the first step. And what I'll say, you know, if if you take a step to um, the market has changed in the last 10 years, in the last five years drastically around offerings for DR. And uh, take a look at what's out there in terms of uh, as a service providers. I, I touched really briefly earlier about tests being hard. There are managed service providers that offer DR as a service that will take on 80 to 90% of the low-dose tests for you, help you automate, uh, provide tools and license that make this less of a burden on your team and allow you to you know, have somebody else take responsibility for this and take it off your shoulders. So I, I gave you two, you asked for one, know what your business objectives are, explore the market for what's out there today because it looks a lot different than it did yesterday. Two suggestions are always better than one, Ben. This has been a great conversation and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to sit down and talk about these IT disasters. So Ben, thank you very much. My pleasure, Jeff, and enjoyed the conversation. For our listeners out there, if you want to learn more, you could check out our white paper on six worst practices for IT disaster recovery and what to do instead. You can find that on intervision.com. If you do want to learn more, 
I suggest you visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Ben Miller. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.